So as I said at the start of our service, we are wrapping up our series called Messy Grace, in which we're looking at the relationship between the church and the LGBTQ community, a relationship that has been fraught with many difficulties and challenges, many questions and concerns. And I don't know about the rest of you, it has been a challenging series. It's been a challenging series to preach. Uh, I'm sure it's been a challenging series to hear. And uh, so as we move through this, really what we want to remember is that through it all, what we're focusing on this series is what does it mean in our relationships, our relationships with our neighbors, uh, our relationships with those uh, from the LGBTQ community who are in our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, and yes, even in our families. That's really what this is all about. What is our posture as Christians? Uh, what does it mean to be people who, who are bearers of the gospel? in those conversations and relationships. That's the whole point of this series. And so as we come to the end of it, I think it's only right as we have throughout this whole thing that we bathe it in prayer and that we begin in an attitude of prayer. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that through your son Jesus, we are your children. We are called by your name and we thank you that you've gathered us here that we might come before you, that we might come before your word and ask you to guide us and to lead us, especially in a conversation that is often difficult. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be in our midst, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive the message that you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week, if you remember, we kind of tackled this question. So is being gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer a sin? And what we saw is that that really is the wrong question. Because the reality, the thing that scripture teaches us is that we are all sinners. Every single one of us, gay or straight, doesn't matter. Because sin is so much more about, uh, is, is so much more about what's going on in the core of our hearts than it simply is about a rule of lists of, to do, of do's and don'ts and so on and so on so forth. And we really meditated on this passage from Romans chapter 3, where Paul says very clearly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the question really is, how does God treat sinners? And the answer is in the rest of that verse, uh, and, and in verse 24, where he says, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That all of us are sinners, and yet all of us are saved freely by his grace. But it still leads to a question, doesn't it? We kind of ended, you know, last week with another question. That is, so what is God's will? How are we supposed to live in light of our sexuality? And I think it's important to take a step back from this question, as we've been kind of doing throughout this whole series, and ask, well, what's really going on behind the question? Because oftentimes, when, when we start to ask questions like that, we immediately jump to, well, what do we need to do? Okay, what are the things that we need to start doing? What are the things we need to stop doing? What, what kind of behavior is expected? What sorts of actions are we supposed to take? And while that question does have some merit and some profit, I think that there's an even more important prior question that has to be asked. And the prior question is this, who are you? What is your identity? And the reason that is a more important question is because one of the things that the Bible tells us over and over and over again is that our doing flows from our being. 
that whatever we do, it comes out of what's at the core of who we are. Jesus, in fact, says this at one point. He says, it's not stuff on the outside that you do that defiles you. It's what comes from the heart. And he's like, and likewise, if there's light within you, then there will be light. And he says, it's, it's what's on the inside. And, and identity is really, when we think about it biblically, is really about what's at the core, what's at the heart, what defines who we are. And this is so important because it then serves as a lens for everything else how we view ourselves, how we view the world, how we view our relationships, yes, how we view God. But the problem for us as human beings is that oftentimes we take identifiers and we turn them into identities. We take identifiers and we turn them into identities. Here's what I mean. We take things like our job or our social status or our hobbies or the roles that we play or our race or our politics, and we make these the sum total of who we are. They become our primary identity, and therefore we, we view everything else through that lens. We judge all of our other relationships, all of the things that we do, uh, the church that we belong to, how we interact with our coworkers, all through that primary lens, that, that identifier, which has now become our identity. And the reason why this conversation about the church and the LGBT community is so difficult is because we've raised sexuality and relationships to the level of an identity as a culture. We've taken an, an identifier, something that is a part of our lives, and we've made it the ultimate thing that then defines us. I remember when this was really driven home for me. I was working as a, as a college uh, minister in the city of Chicago with InterVarsity. And uh, we actually had a meeting with an activist who worked with uh, the gay community. And he said, you know, and the reason why we had this meeting is we wanted to understand. We wanted to understand what does it mean to have a relationship between the church and the gay community and stuff like that. And he said, well, one of the things that Christians need to understand is that there are certain things that you guys say and do that actually make the conversation a lot harder. I said, one of the things that you guys say that, that, that really isn't a bridge building statement is you say things like, well, I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. But for those in the gay community, being gay is who we are. That's our identity. So when you say like, you know, I love the sinner and hate the sin, you're basically still telling us that you hate us. And it's not a, a bridge building statement. And that was, that was kind of eye-opening for me. I kind of sat back and I was just like, well, number one, that's really good to know because the last thing I want to do is throw up barriers to people hearing the gospel. But at the same time, I really wrestled with that. This idea of, of my sexuality being my identity. And the reason why is because when we say that, what we're ultimately saying is that we will never find true fulfillment unless that thing is met, Right? So unless I can express my sexuality or I can be in a same-sex relationship or I can transition, then I'm never going to truly be full and complete as a human being. It becomes the lens through which we view everything else. And, and honestly, as I thought about that even more, as I've really reflected on it over the years, I realized this isn't just a problem in the LGBTQ community. This is a problem in our entire culture. Our entire culture, including the church, has actually elevated sexuality and relationships to the level of an identity. And here's what I mean. We see it in the ways in which we talk about marriage, even in the church. And here's what I mean by that. We say, 
that marriage is the highest form of human relationship and intimacy that you will ever experience. Marriage is good, and, and there's someone out there for you. There's that special person that you're longing for, and you're never going to be complete and whole until you find that individual. Do you see? This is kind of how we've taken sexuality and relationships and we've elevated it to the point of an identity. And it's not just a problem in the LGBTQ community. This is what straight people do too. But here's what I want to say and what I want to argue this morning is that that is a theology that is not based on scripture, but more based on Jerry Maguire. Okay, it's Jerry Maguire's fault that, that we all think this, right? You guys know the story of Jerry Maguire, right? Some of you have seen the movie. Tom Cruise plays Jerry Maguire, this hotshot sports agent, right? And very early on in the movie, he has kind of this crisis because he realizes that he's lost his heart. You know, he's just churning through athletes like they're like meat, right? He's basically turning them out as a product and he's kind of lost the heart and the relationships with these athletes. And he goes on this like soul-searching journey where he quits his firm and, and his assistant, Renee Zellweger, goes with him. And as they go on this journey together, they go from being coworkers to being friends, being from friends to being lovers, from being lovers to being husband and wife. And, and there comes this moment though where the crisis is still kind of going on. And, they, and they, they start to wonder, why are we really together? And they kind of take a break. And Jerry goes on this road trip with his, with his client, his one client. And his client has a great night. And he realizes in this moment that he actually loves his client. He loves his client's family. And, but at the same time, he's missing something. And, and he runs out of the stadium and he gets on a plane and he flies back to their house and he comes crashing in the front door and Renee Zellweger's there. And he's like, he has this great speech and he's crying and he finally gets that line. He says, you complete me. And she says, you had me at hello. And we all go, oh until you realize that's really sad. Here's why I say that. If that's true, Jerry is setting himself and her up for a massive disappointment. Because if we are saying that it's going to take another human being to complete us, to meet the deepest longings of the human heart, there is no way any human being on the face of the planet can possibly do that. There's absolutely no way that they can possibly do that. Why? Because we're all broken. That's what we talked about last week. All of us is imperfect. And what we do when we say things like that is we place all of our God-sized expectations on the shoulders of another person. Not only will that leave us wholly unsatisfied, but it will crush them with a kind of oppression and expectation that no one should possibly be expected to meet. And we do this all the time. And when we as the church have bought into that narrative, when we bought into that lie, not only does it make it hard for us to love and to reach the LGBT community, it also makes it hard for us to love and reach people who are single. Right? Because if I'm a single person and I'm being told that the only way that I'm going to be fulfilled is by finding that special person, then I'm going to be perpetually empty. That I am somehow less than. It hinders our ability to reach out to those who've been divorced. 
and wondering, is there a place for them in the church? It hinders our ability to reach out to those who've been widowed and no longer have their spouse because essentially what we've told them is that they are less than because they don't have that person. But what the Bible tells us is that that deep longing in our heart for intimacy, to be known, to be loved, is not found in the identity of our sexuality and our relationships. It's found in Christ. I love what John says in 1 John chapter 3. What he tells us is he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He says that what we're really longing for is we're longing for Jesus because we are God's children. And that until you understand that, you will never be ultimately satisfied or whole or complete. And this is important for us to realize because it goes right back to that question. We say, how are we supposed to live in light of our sexuality? The answer from Scripture is you're not. We're not. Because our sexuality isn't who we are. Who we are is we are children of God, and it's only in him that we are going to find fullness and completeness. Now, that doesn't mean that relationships aren't important. But, it doesn't, but what it does mean is it doesn't mean that you need to look for that like one special perfect person. And lest we doubt this, let's think for just a moment about the Savior that we follow. We believe that Jesus was the absolutely perfect human being, the only one who ever lived perfectly, whoever lived the full life, at least according to what it means to experience all of human fullness. And I have news for you. He was single, right? He was single. He had a loving relationship with his Father and the Holy Spirit. He had a great relationship in the community of his disciples, whom he called not just servants, but friends, whom it says in the Gospel of John he loved to the very end. Jesus absolutely experienced love and intimacy and community, and he wasn't married. Why? Because he knew who he was. He was the child of his Father in heaven, and that allowed him to have full and deep relationships with other human beings that weren't bound up in sexuality and romance. And the same is true for us. Think about the trajectory of the Bible, right? What starts in a garden ends in a city. Eden was not God's final plan. So likewise, what starts with a a husband and wife ends with a family of faith. And that is where relationships are found, is in the church, is among God's people, as we point each other back to where our true identity is found, in Jesus, in the God who alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. It's about identity, right? All other identities fall short. So how do we live in light of that identity? That becomes the next question, right? Well, the answer in John uh, is that he actually gives us two ways that we uh, understand how to live in light of our identity. Here's the first thing he says. He says, dear friends, now that we are children of God and what we know uh, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So he says is how we live in light of our identity as Christians is by realizing that it's a journey, right? 
He says, what we will be has not yet been made known, but when Christ appears, we shall be like him. What he's basically saying is he's saying, this idea of living out your identity is a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong journey. And let me just give you an example, okay? When my parents conceived me, I was 100% their child, right? I wasn't like only partially their child. It wasn't like one month conception, I'm 1% their kid and then 2% their kid. Now I'm born, I'm 12% their kid. And you know, I kind of grew up and I start becoming more their kid. No, the moment they conceived, I was a child. That's who I was. That's who I am. But I've spent my entire life learning how to be a son, right? Learning how to live out that identity is a journey and it takes time. It's a process of learning and growing. I have not done it perfectly. And yet that's exactly what John is saying here. He's saying what we will be has not yet been made known, but when Jesus comes in his fullness, we know that we'll be like him. He's saying, look, you're gonna be on this journey until the day Jesus comes back. You're gonna be learning how to be a child of God until the day that he returns. And this is important because oftentimes when it comes to this question of so how do we live as Christians, especially in light of our sexuality, the question often comes up, so what about repentance, right? Especially when it comes to the area of sexuality. And by the way, the vast majority of people who ask that question I've found as a pastor are straight people wondering about their gay neighbor. They're not actually asking it about their own sexuality and relationships. Can we just call that for what it is for just a moment? We say, what about repentance? Well, what does scripture tell us about repentance? Scripture tells us that repentance is a journey too. I mean, think about what Paul says in Romans chapter two, verse four. He says, don't you know, uh, or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that his kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? What is he saying? He's saying, look, repentance is the response to God's grace, not the prerequisite for it. And yet oftentimes that's how we act in the church, right? We say you need to behave and then you need to believe and then you can belong. But that's not the way the gospel works when you look at scripture. What it says is you belong so that you might come to believe that you might then live in light of who you are. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, grace is given first. It then leads to repentance. And when we think about repentance, what we see is repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's an everyday, ongoing, lifelong process. Luther himself understood this when he wrote his 95 Theses. The very first thesis, he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And this is important because the biblical word repentance means to turn, to turn from one way of living toward another way of learning. It's a a movement-oriented word. It's a journey type of word. And if we have to repent wholly and perfectly before we can belong in God's family or trust in his grace, we're going to be waiting a long time to be welcomed in. And the reason why is if we think about our lives for a moment, we realize that there are different kinds of aspects of our lives that need God's renewal and his transformation. When I think about my life, for example, there are certain areas of my life that were out of step with God's will and purpose and plan. And the moment I became a Christian through the power of the Holy Spirit, he granted me some victory over those things. Now, there are other areas of my life that are outside of God's will and plan that I still struggle with. 
I still struggle to, to, to know how to live that out or even have the ability to live that out and live in obedience. I know it's a problem, but it's hard. And then there are areas of my life that are out of line with God's will that I don't even know, that I don't even know about. And if God said, well, you got to get fully repented and get that all worked out before you're welcome in my family, I would still be waiting. But what does the Bible tell us? Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our repentance all sorted out because repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's a journey. And what we're called to do is we're called to journey with him. And it's as we do that that we find our life. There's a minister by the name of Sam Alberry, and honestly, I think that he's one of the best people when it comes to the, this conversation that we're having. Sam is a, is a British theologian and minister and speaker. He's also a man for whom his entire life he's struggled with same-sex attraction. And he's talked about his journey through it all. And this is what he actually says in his book, Is God Anti-Gay? He, he looks at the passage where Jesus tells us that anyone, whoever would be his disciple needs to take up their cross and follow him. And here's what Sam says. He says, it is the same for us all, whoever. He says, I am to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. Every Christian is called to costly sacrifice. Denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It is saying no to your deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. To take up a cross is to declare your life as you have known it, forfeit. And he says, and that is a journey that we are all called to take as Christians, every single one of us. But here's the promise when you look at that calling from Jesus. He says, whoever loses their life for my sake and for the gospel will find it, will save it. This is why knowing our identity first is so important is it allows us to walk the journey well because it says, God is your father who loves you who delights in you, who wants the best for you. So when he calls you to do something hard, when he calls you to the challenge of taking up your cross, you can know that it is for your good and not your harm. You can know that he's asking you to do it because he desires truly the best for you. That he will walk with you no matter what. He will never let you go nor forsake you. And in the journey, you will find the life that you've always been longing for. So take the journey with him. That brings us to the last thing that John tells us is how we walk that journey well. He says, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Now, a couple things about this verse. First and foremost, that word pure is actually the Greek word hagiadzo, which means the word we get holy. When he says that they're being made pure, what he means is that they're being made holy. Holy means to be set apart for God's purposes. And he says, and the way in which you become more holy is by having this hope. We walk the journey in hope. As God in Christ makes us more and more holy, as we put into practice what he's taught us, as we follow him in obedience, we do so in the hope that as we go, he goes with us. In the hope that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians, isn't it? We walk in hope. Remembering who our God and Savior is and what he's done for us. 
And, and furthermore, we don't walk that hope alone. We walk that hope in community. I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called or to the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He says we walk this journey of hope together with humility and gentleness, patience and love. This is part of the reason why I actually think this series has been so challenging for us as a church. Because people are like, but what's our stance? What's our position? What are the rules? And you know, Paul says, it's not about rules. It's about relationship. We walk through the mess together. We sort out our identity and learn to grow up side by side. We take every single step with one another in humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Which is why we as pastors, when people say, well, what about people's relationships or their lifestyle or so on and so forth? We say, well, then we want to talk with that person and walk with that person. Because we understand that we don't walk this journey of hope alone. That we need to point each other back to Jesus. And yeah, it's messy. And we don't have all the steps figured out. But we follow him in faithfulness and love, walking side by side. I love how Mark Yarhouse, he's a noted author. He's a professor at Wheaton College. He does a lot of work with the LGBTQ community. And he said, you know, one of the things I had to learn early on in this ministry is that they will never accept that they have a loving father in heaven if they don't experience love from me. That's what we're called to be as God's people. That's what Ephesians is saying when it tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He's talking to all of us together. And as we walk and as we go, we will learn to look, live, and love more like Jesus. That's our mission as a church. That's who we are. Our lives are grounded in God's word. They're sustained by God's grace. And they are walked in faith, in community, as we trust in his spirit, following our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is indeed the author and the perfecter of our faith. The journey is long. The journey is challenging. But the journey is ultimately one that leads to life. And that's what we do. That's who we are. That's what it means to live with messy grace. Because that's how Jesus loves us. And so it's with that in mind, I wanted to close in a word of prayer. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you didn't wait for us to clean up our act before you came to us. Rather, you entered into the mess to bring us hope and love and new life. You welcomed us into your presence that we might trust you as our Savior and then learn to walk in light of our new identity. And so, Lord, help us as a church to know that, to believe that, to live that, and experience that together. That we might grow up into every, in every way into him who is the head, 
namely Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have hope, life, forgiveness, and salvation, and in whose name we say, Amen.